This episode of Aftermath is dedicated with heart and humility to Neil Peart, drummer and lyricist of Rush, who inspired Firepit Creative Group beyond measure and whose influence lives on. Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath Episode 4 Engines of Survival In 2057 and 2069, the people of Earth faced many trials. Scarcity of resources, plagues, poverty, famine, and despair. The superpowers of the Earth fell into factions, each armed with its own doomsday arsenal. Diplomacy failed, and civilization came to an end. Not with a whimper, but with a bang. General Benjamin Castro, the Israeli government's special envoy to the United Nations, was relocated from the UN headquarters in New York City to an underground base. During transport, General Castro was knocked unconscious and preserved in cryostasis. The general awoke 43 years later, in a subterranean society built by survivors of the United Nations. Revived by the Phoenix Project, General Castro was introduced to Phoenix law enforcement officer Major Leonard McGillicuddy and Professor John Bath. If they could work together, Castro, Cuddy, and Bath would lead the first expedition to the Earth's surface. Aided by Project Administrator Danielle Devenu, Chief Surgeon Miro Ganaya, and Engineer Donna Chang, their mission was to determine what life still existed on the world above and if the survivors in the underground Phoenix Project could return. Cuddy remembered the lid closing on the machine. For a moment, he gasped, unable to breathe. Then, he heard the rush of gases and felt gelatinous liquid filling the cocoon-like tube in which he lay. In the void, Cuddy felt tiny pinpricks in his skull. Dr. Ganaya said he should expect that, but knowing it was coming didn't make it any easier. His first instinct was to escape, to get the hell out of there. He felt like he was being choked, suffocated. But then, an oddly passive feeling overcame the Major, something he hadn't felt in a long time. With his eyes forced closed, Major McGillicuddy could have sworn he saw even felt the haze of brownish-yellow light. Then, a bright green flash, and his body weakened, like he had just finished a double shift or a sparring session with his superior 
Colonel Dana Marsh. Time passed. It could have been seconds or hours. There was no way to know for sure. McGillicuddy awoke to the sound of gears springing to life, a machine like a buzzsaw powering up. He regained feeling slowly, then quickly. Like a camera lens adjusting, the Major's surroundings finally came into focus. He found himself in a square room of chipped marble and peeling plaster. Holy shit, he thought. It worked. Ganaya, Chang, Devenu, they were right. Everything they said they could do, they did. His mind was transmitted from one machine to another, into a robotic body. The Major pulled himself from the elevated port on the wall where he saw five other simulacrum, six robots total. But what happened to the General, he thought. Where was Dr. Bath? Cuddy surveyed the room, got his bearings, and adapted to his new body. It felt leaner and yet somehow more powerful. Despite the darkness, Cuddy found his way over to the collapsed pillars and fiber optic cable littering the room. Then he heard something stirring behind him. Cuddy? The Major heard his leader, General Benjamin Castro's voice. I'm here, General, Cuddy said. Bath? Castro asked. Cuddy walked to the row of simulacrum positioned on the wall. He stood near the one emitting sound. Not here yet, Cuddy said. How long have you been online? Castro asked. Not long, the Major replied. It takes some time getting used to. Moving around feels strange and, well, <laughs> I look like a damn robot. Cuddy reached up. He helped Castro release the flexible latches, keeping his simulacrum in place. You are a damn robot, said Castro, as he felt himself slowly lowered to the floor. All three of us are. It does feel odd. Though it's nice to be able to move my legs, even if they aren't really mine. Castro gazed around. As Cuddy did before him, he felt his eyesight acclimate suddenly to the dim space focusing mechanically until he could see with sharper clarity than ever before. What is all of this? Cuddy glanced around. He was unsure about the technology. It looks like a storage center, he said. Maybe a workshop for construction and repair of the simulacrums. Castro walked cautiously. Baby steps, he thought. Power? the general asked. Cuddy pointed to a large machine in the corner. It looked like a giant radiator with massive conduits running in and out of it. A faint green light glowed at its center. The generator came to light the same time I did, Cuddy explained. And weapons? Castro asked. Cuddy shook his head. Not so lucky. We'll cross that bridge when we... Suddenly, there was a loud humming sound as the generator came to life, charging the next simulacrum. The same spinning of metal Cuddy heard earlier. Well, looks like the good doctor is breaking through, Castro said. One of the three other simulacrum on the wall powered up. The clamps holding it in place broke against the robot's swinging fiberglass arm. What? Where? Bath's voice emitted from the robot as it fell to the floor. Easy, doctor, the general said. He motioned to Cuddy, 
and they both helped Dr. Bath's robot body stand up. We've got you. The transmission was a success. Welcome to the surface. An odd wheezing sound came from Bath's simulacrum, and the doctor spoke as if in mid-sentence. It was like a psychedelic experience. Right? Cuddy said. Here, look at this. He turned their attention to compartments along the opposite wall. Castro looked up. Looks like some kind of storage locker. There was a mechanism preventing them from opening the compartments, a device unlike Cuddy had ever seen. Locked, Cuddy said. I'll try to pick it. Dr. Bath walked slowly around the perimeter of the room. The majority of power appears to be running through here. Bath pointed at the glowing generator, then to the conduits, and over their heads to the compartments near Castro and Cuddy. Look, Dr. Bath said. A plasma pipette. This isn't entirely unlike the technology back in the laboratory underground. Cuddy dismantled the locking mechanism. He forcefully pried open one of the compartments. These must be the... What did Devenu call them? Cyberskins? Pseudoskins, Bath corrected Cuddy. It's a biomechanical coating that protects and adapts to the simulacrum. It retrieves impulses, digitally encodes them in your robotic neural processor, and sends them back to your brain in the laboratory. And the skin makes the robot look like our real bodies? Asked Cuddy. He broke open another compartment, and then another. The fiberglass and composite sphere that made up Bath's simulacrum head nodded slightly. That's the idea, said Bath. The singular, moving red lens that acted as the robot's eyes moved as Cuddy and the General moved. Cheng says it's a secondary result of the green-tooth Neurolink. Somehow, our subconscious self-perception actually molds the pseudoskin. Then I'm glad I just found this box of coveralls, Cuddy said. The less I see of your subconscious self-perception while we're wandering the ruins of New York, the better. General Castro pointed at the pseudoskins. We need to get these over our bodies before we go to the surface. We have 12 hours before signal degradation begins. Let's get to work. Danielle Devenu transmitted her written report to the Shadow Council. She was thankful there was no immediate reply. She was honored to be in such an important role, but presenting to the faceless bureaucrats who spoke with a single, modulated voice was awkward. Somehow, they were able to make Danielle feel cold and inhuman, like she was their pawn instead of playing a role in their representation of the 3,000 citizens for whom they all worked. After a short nap, Danielle left her quarters and returned to the lab. Report, she said to Chang and Ganaya. We were successful, Chang replied curtly. That remains to be seen, said Devenu. She immediately regretted how arrogant this sounded. Ganaya approached Devenu. She means the transference was successful, Ganaya said. It took longer than expected for their bodies to come online, for them to get used to them. Yes, Cheng said, without looking at Devenu. They are already three hours in. Danielle watched the chronometers on the wall. One counting up, the other counting down. The clock is ticking, she said, unable to avoid the chilling feeling that in the underground Phoenix project, all time was artificial. The citizens knew what the date was, of course. 
and they had a general idea from the central processor what the time was on the surface. But in reality, they didn't know the actual location of the Phoenix Project. They didn't know what state, what country, or what time zone they were in. I realize they're doing everything they can to make their way to Manhattan, Devenu said, but the Shadow Council wants a way to track them on the surface. Chang closed her eyes and then exhaled. We would need access to cellular towers and satellites. If we could do that, Danielle, we would be able to locate where we are. Danielle nodded. Exactly. We'll have to tell them how to do it, added Ganaya. Feed them instructions. Danielle knew she relied heavily on Dr. Ganaya and Chang, not just to follow orders, but for innovative ways to solve problems. She couldn't help but wonder. If the central processor was so intuitive, and the Shadow Council excelled at decision-making, had they been able to predict all of the stumbling blocks the mission had faced already? Were they able to adapt, counter, maneuver? And if they were, did that not prove that Danielle, Ganaya, Chang, all of them were just pawns? Figure it out and do it, Devenu said. They don't have to know everything, just enough to carry out the Council's plan. Understood? She turned to leave the laboratory. Yes, Chang nodded. She looked over at Ganaya. Understood. Dr. John Bath's strength wasn't in the mechanical, but he never had a problem with the technical. If given a manual, Bath could memorize it, tell him a story, and he could remember it word for word. Show him a picture, and he could describe it or recreate it in detail. This was easy for him. Removing the pseudoskin from its compressed, hermetically sealed cartridge was simple. Despite the training Bath was given by Chang a few days earlier, however, applying the pseudoskin to the simulacrum was more difficult. It took 30 minutes to apply the pseudoskin to each of their robot bodies. Then, Bath was able to guide General Castro and Major McGillicuddy on how to affix the biomechanical material to his own simulacrum. The process complete, each of the explorers appeared like a better, more polished version of themselves. Although they each stood exactly six feet tall, Cuddy still seemed larger and more impressive than Bath. The doctor's wrinkles and whiskers were gone. His face seemed polished, his skin smooth. General Castro had a youthful veneer, radiating an energy absent from his aged, crippled body. Bath, Cuddy said. We good? The doctor nodded. As far as I can tell, I mean, we don't know what's on the surface. We have no clue if these bodies will disintegrate when exposed to radiation, or... General Castro cut Bath off. Enough pessimism, Doctor. 3,000 people in the Phoenix Project, and maybe more spread around the globe, are counting on us. We have a mission, and it starts at the end of that tunnel. Castro pointed into the darkness. Cuddy, if you would lead the way. Major McGillicuddy walked in front of the other man. Gladly, he said then turned to Dr. Bath. Behind me, Doctor. You look out for me, I'll look out for you. Fair enough? Bath nodded. As they walked, he couldn't help but roll the metaphysical conundrum around in his head. It was not his robot body in control of his mind. 
but his body and mind back in the underground lab controlling the robot and its actions. There was something frightening about this to him. Move out, Kesha ordered. In the past week, Dr. Miral Ganaya slept little. When she did, her thoughts before falling asleep were preoccupied with the events that transpired in the laboratory. Each time she and Chang made progress, there was some setback. If the engineer made some minor fix or upgrade in the transmission technology, Dr. Ganaya became cautious that the biological or neurological uplinks could cause complications for General Castro, Major McGillicuddy, or Dr. Bath. When Ganaya resolved a medical concern, she revealed her work to Chang. The Asian engineer was always more focused on her own work and rarely impressed with Ganaya. This troubled Miral. Weren't they on the same team, working towards the same goal? Why, when they worked so closely together in the lab, did Chang insist on compartmentalizing everything they did? Ganaya had other concerns besides Chang's attitude. She wondered about the information that came from the central processor, the instructions the Shadow Council gave to Devenu and filtered down to Ganaya and Chang. Devenu wore an almost too confident expression when describing the technology, the mission, and the risks with General Castro. When the General, Major McGillicuddy, and Dr. Bath weren't around, or were in the transmission coffins, it seemed like Devenu couldn't resist showing her doubts to Ganaya and Chang. These concerns were at the forefront of Ganaya's mind when she returned to the laboratory that morning. Chang, said Miral, I want to talk to you. It's about Danielle. Chang hovered over a schematic. You don't trust her, she said, turning only slightly to face Ganaya. I trust her fine, Miral replied. It's just... I don't like the idea of withholding information important information from the ground team. If they truly are our best hope, we should be honest with them. Cheng turned in her chair. She shifted to face Ganaya directly, but with her arm stretched across the hand-drawn schematic. I don't think Danielle is suggesting we be dishonest with the general and his crew, Cheng said, and then hesitated. But... But? Miral prompted the engineer. Chang exhaled deeply, a rarity for her. <sighs> you heard what Devenu said about why they were selected, Chang said. You also know the computer has made controversial decisions before. So is the council, Miral nodded. Indeed, Chang agreed, but I didn't say that. Ganaya walked to the table. You're a loyal and fortuitous drone, Chang, Miral said encouraged by her ability to be candid, if impolite. You're just like they expect you to be. Chang grinned on one side of her mouth, another rare reaction from the quiet but driven woman. If you mean I'm not difficult, Chang replied, I'll take that as a compliment. After all, that's exactly how the council wants you and me, Mural. Uncomplicated. Ganaya scoffed. <laughs> Loyal to the mission. Chang nodded. That way, she said, if the general fails, or if McGillicuddy truly is the bully Bath says he is and gets himself killed looking for action, or if Dr. Bath is unreliable or dissents, 
the computer selects the next team, and you and I redouble our efforts. Kanaya didn't respond at first. She looked around the room, wondering what Chang was getting at. Did the engineer want Castro and his team to fail? Did she expect them to? If the general and the team do not succeed, Meryl said, how are we supposed to get control of the simulacrum? How are we supposed to help another team if the robots are inoperable or destroyed? I think that is what Danielle was suggesting, Chang replied. We have to find a way to track them. To control them. If necessary. Ganaya shrugged. She resisted pointing at the other woman. You think you're better suited for the assignment, don't you? Meryl was putting it all together. You want to be in there instead of them. Chang pushed her chair away from the table, then stood. Did I say that? Not in so many words, Meryl replied. Chang glanced the doctor over. Her expression suggested she was looking for something, some flaw. Or was it just the glare of judgment? I think leaving such a monumental task in the hands of soldiers and the arrogant teacher is questionable, said Chang. She walked towards the massive battery between General Castro's mechanized coffin and the one in which Major McGillicuddy lay. Ganiah followed Chang at a distance. You're going to give them instructions on how to access the technology to track them, to control the simulacrum from the laboratory. Let's not discuss it here, Meryl. Chang hunched over. She checked the power levels on the battery. Right. Ganiah glanced from one corner of the room to the other. The council is always listening. I'm working on that too, Chang said. A way we can communicate unhindered. What? Meryl stood a few feet away from Chang. Calm down, doctor. We're all in this together. Chang was trying to be reassuring, but there was something cold about the way she said this, as if she didn't mean it, or didn't believe it. Now, if you please... I detected some interference a moment ago. If we are to recover our team, I need to make a few adjustments. Excuse me. Cuddy led the group down the long tunnel from darkness to the light. Bath walked between the Major and Castro. As they moved forward, the General noticed Bath's simulacrum assuming the doctor's mannerisms. His head bobbed, and his eyes scanned the walls the floors, and the ceiling of the tunnel. Bath's hands wandered in the air, as if touching something that wasn't there. His idiosyncrasies reminded General Castro of something. Someone. A man he once knew. A week after being removed from cryostasis, General Castro's memory was still spotty. There were holes, blank spaces he tried desperately to fill. He knew Dr. Bath's parents were at the United Nations the same time he was. They were bustled to safety in the same mass exodus that ended with Castro and the Phoenix Project. The general remembered rescuing Bath's father, Diarmid Bath, from a Lebanese prison. They were both younger then, and Diarmid wasn't yet married. He had no children. The general surmised that Bath's parents must have married while in the Phoenix Project. Middle-aged or older, they conceived a child. Was that a difficult decision to make? 
to bring a child into that hopeless world, secluded from everything they once knew? Or had John Bath's conception been an accident? Or was it an act of defiance in the underground, where the population and the actions of members of the community were watched and controlled? General Castro searched for clues, answers. All he found was instinct and muscle memory. Clouded visions of wars fought, battles won, and the faces of those he led. Nameless faces. Voices calling out across the decades. Lives he prayed were not lost in vain. Loyal soldiers he hoped he might find some way to avenge. Hold, said Cuddy abruptly. What have you got? Castro asked. Looks like a locked door. Metal? The general replied. Cuddy reached out and touched the structure. Actually, he said, no, it's not. Makes you wonder. Bath spoke quietly. How long has this installation been here? From the looks of things, the dust, the lack of maintenance, it's too hard to tell. Castro glanced around them. He looked for a control panel. Well, he said, it must be at least 60 years old. I'm not so sure about that, General, Bath replied. Maybe older. Much older. Castro and Bath watched Cuddy go to work on the lock. The Major moved swiftly and with precision. This technology, the power sources, the pseudoskin, Castro said, none of this existed in my lifetime. What are you saying? asked Cuddy. Bath didn't wait for the General to respond. It's possible, the doctor said, that this technology, this facility, and everything about it was developed more than a century ago, hidden away. Sure, there were probably engineers and technicians who came and went, but the lack of security suggests two things. It was kept secret by those who knew about it, and was designed to be found at a later time. By us? Cuddy asked. Perhaps. Bath replied. Castro turned to Cuddy. How are you coming with that door, Major? Cuddy groaned. Almost got it. Cuddy pulled the lock. He threw open a cellar door. The Major, General Castro, and Dr. Bath climbed upwards into the light. My God. Castro spoke slowly, quietly. He gazed across the island then across the river at New York City in the distance. The destruction. The devastation.
Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production. Based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Original script by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with music by Warren Davis. Links to the sound effects used for Aftermath can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Fire Pit Creative Group.